Welcome to Nightlife, the podcast. stop to wonder, why is it that pirates seem to drink so much rum? They're never drinking vodka or gin. It's always rum. Why did the average pirate guzzle so much of the stuff? Why, until 1970, were British sailors in the Royal Navy issued a daily ration of rum? Did you know that its main ingredient, sugar, was first cultivated by people many thousands of years ago, not far off our Australian shores? And did you know that rum's a drink that could well have sparked revolution in the US? Uh, Of course, we can lay claim to. I don't know if we're the only place in the world that literally has a rum rebellion in its history. Now, over the um, the next little while on Nightlife, we're going to take a look at some of the cultural histories of the spirits that we drink today because they're actually fascinating. We're going to kick off with a look at rum tonight. Uh, joining me is Richard Foss, who's a journalist, author, culinary historian and lecturer who's based in Manhattan Beach, California. Hello, Richard, and welcome to Nightlife. Hello, Suzanne. Delightful to speak with you. And hello, Australia, from beautiful (laughs) Manhattan Beach, where it's currently about to be a windstorm. And Richard uh, and I were just talking off air. And Richard, you're, I mean, I'm sure there's a few, but you're one of the uh, Americans who has been to, to Wagga Wagga, which not every American can claim. Yes, I was in Australia to give a talk for the Jane Austen Society and visit some friends in Melbourne. And had the chance to stop by Wagga. And I, oh, excuse me, Wagga Wagga, since I wasn't born there, I've been corrected on that. And it was just delightful. I really enjoyed it. It was nice to get out of the city, <laughs> see what some of the countryside is really like. There we go. As I said, uh, not many Americans make it to Wagga Wagga, Wagga, but Richard did. Now, Richard, what is rum exactly? Can you take us through what goes into this drink? Technically, rum is anything that is distilled from sugar. Now, it can be distilled either from sugarcane juice or from molasses, which is a waste product from sugar refining. And most of the rum in the world is distilled from molasses because of the fact that, first of all, the raw cane juice is a more fragile product. It doesn't transport very well very far before it starts to sour and starts to change, whereas molasses is something very stable. And second of all, since molasses is basically a byproduct of sugarcane, for a long time it's free. They used to feed molasses to cattle and uh, or throw it away, dump it in rivers. And then someone discovered that you could take a gallon of water, a gallon of molasses, and distill a gallon of rum. So you take something free and something else free, and then you make something you can sell. Who's going to turn that down? So (laughs) there are a few places in the world where, for cultural reasons primarily, they still make rum from sugarcane juice. And that's really more a case of, well, we've always done it this way, so we'll keep doing it this way. And those are mostly places that were settled by the French and in Brazil. And in those places, they still use the sugarcane juice there is a different flavor because 
when you distill the sugarcane juice, you get a lot of these vegetal characteristics that remind you that sugarcane is a kind of grass, whereas when you distill from molasses, you get the caramelized flavor because of the fact that this has already been uh, processed once uh, with heat, so you get that caramel. Now, that was a long answer to a short question, wasn't it? I promise to not always do that, unless I do. It's quite... <laughs> Quite all right. Now, that's making perfect sense then as to why, for example, um, Australia's big rum company, Bundaberg Rum, is located basically in Australia's sugarcane fields. Presumably, they also started using that that waste molasses in, in the beginning. But I wonder... Yes, I bet why would you... I bet it's not free anymore, locate, though. <laughs> when you're turning something bulky into something compact and easily shipped, why would you locate very far from the source? So, uh, Richard, historians think sugarcane itself was actually first cultivated in Papua New Guinea. That is correct. And it's something that there are varieties of the sugarcane in nature also in Southeast Asia. But the dominant strain in the world is one that originally started in Papua New Guinea. And uh, naturally, whenever anyone any people discovers that they have something that has all of this available sweetness and all of this available energy, the native Papua New Guineans uh, chewed it. But as far as we know, they they chewed it. They may have cooked with it some, but uh, that's about it. We don't know of them actually distilling. And when do we know about people first making it into alcohol? This is an interesting question. When I wrote my book, the earliest confirmed reference to distilling alcohol from sugarcane was in Brazil in 1552. Uh, and while I was writing it, I discovered that there was another one from 1550 in Southeast Asia where a French sea captain said that he had been offered, and of course he said this in French, eau de vie de sucre, which means um, alcohol from sugar. So what else could it have been? So that could have taken it back to 1550. But after I wrote the book, uh, a historian by the name of David Wandrich found a reference, and I thought you would ask this, so I had this in front of me, that in a book written in 1357 by an Indian historian, uh, Ziauddin Barani, he said that the pre-Mughal Sultan of Delhi, who ruled from 1296 to 1316, prohibited distilling wine from sugar. Now, the interesting thing about this is there are two words in his language for sugar, one of which, khand, is the word from which we get candy, and that means a uh, raw sugar, uh, and excuse me, that is khand, candy, is processed sugar, like molasses or granulated sugar. Uh, the other one uh, is sakhar, uh, the Arabic word for sugar. So if he had said sakhar, it probably would have been sugarcane juice, but he said khand. So this is the earliest that we know, and we only know that it was done because they wouldn't prohibit something that someone wasn't doing. <laughs> That's right, because he banned so, it. That's how you know. We have no idea, however, how much earlier than that someone was doing this. They're actually in at a place called Taxila in Pakistan. They have found the remains of distilling equipment. Now, they don't know what was distilled uh, in this, and this distilling equipment is estimated to date back to the year 300 or 400. So rum could be a thousand years older than any reference that we know of. It's just that all of the people who were distilling it left no record.
Uh, Richard Foss is my guest. We're talking about the history of rum here on Nightlife tonight. Uh, Richard is the author of uh, Rum, A Global History. So he knows a little bit about rum. Are you fond of it as well, Richard? Is it your favourite tipple? The funny thing is, is that when I started writing this book, no, I wasn't particularly fond of it. Um, I actually had a different proposal into the publisher for a history of pickling techniques around the world. Uh, And the publisher came back saying, we don't really want the pickle book now, but we really like your writing and we're looking for someone to write about rum. And I thought, well, I don't really favor it. I'll drink it, but I don't really favor it. But if I write about rum, I get to write about pirates, voodoo, smuggling. Uh, What's not to like? You know, how could how could that book be boring? (laughs) So the thing about it is I figured there's military historians that don't shoot people. So I'll just be a rum historian who doesn't really drink rum a lot. Well, in the process of writing the book, I tried over 100 different types of rums. And now I like it. Um, And I worry about military historians now because you may start out that way. But, you know, once you start studying it, it just takes you over. (laughs) <laughs> oh dear, historian and now rum connoisseur Richard Foss. So look, obviously we've, we've said that you need sugar, you need the knowledge about how to distill the, the molasses particularly to, to make the rum. But I suppose in order to make rum in big quantities, you need big, big sugar plantations. So um, this is where the Caribbean comes into it. And in fact, the slave trade. Yes, because in the Caribbean, you had the perfect climate in which to grow sugar, but you have this problem, which is that in order to take that sugar and make it into something that can easily be exported, you need to get the granular sugar and that takes heat. And what the Caribbean did not have the is the amount of fast growing forest necessary to do this. So the British, when they first started industrial processing of sugar in the Caribbean, really started quickly deforesting the islands, and it became obvious that this was not sustainable. So what they were doing was they were basically stripping the island of wood in order to do that first distillation, where you got the easiest granular sugar, and then you had a whole bunch of molasses. And as I mentioned, at first they had no use for it, but then they uh, discovered the distillation of rum. Now, that is something that had already been done in Brazil much earlier. Uh, As I mentioned before, you had distillation in Brazil in the 1550s. It isn't until another 50 or 60 years that you really have any records of the Dutch and the British in the Caribbean doing this. The difference is that the British were the ones who really commercialized it. The Spanish and the Portuguese and the French, none of them really wanted rum to become a popular beverage. They reserved it for their slaves, soldiers, and sailors. And it was a terrible drink. Uh, But the British, the difference was that the British did not have a trade in brandy and other distilled spirits the way that the French and the Spanish did. So the French and the Spanish actually prohibited the distilling of rum, except for very small amounts that were given to soldiers, sailors, and slaves, not discriminating clientele. Uh, Whereas the British started improving it and bringing a scientific attitude to it. So once the British start doing this, the quality of rum goes up. But the British have this problem. They're running up against this problem with running out of forests. So what they do, they very nearby have a very sparsely 
populated place that has gigantic forests, which is their colonies in America. So what they start doing was transporting the sugar and molasses up to New England, where there are these vast forests. And it's worth considering that if you're working in a sugarcane facility in the Caribbean, you're working with fires in 100 degree heat, that's a death sentence. You know, working in a very hot factory when it's already close to 100 degrees outside in summer, that's awful. On the other hand, in New England, it never gets very hot. And in midwinter, you'd be delighted to work in a distillery, all the free heat you can get in a New England winter. Yeah. So I'm so, imagining, Richard, a, a triangular trade starting up here. You're taking the sugar from the Caribbean up to New England. You're taking the rum what back to back to England itself? Yes, the rum is going to England and of, over really directly to Africa. They uh, made different strengths of rum for drinking by people who cared about the flavor and for the African trade. They preferred a very, very high uh, proof rum for the trade to Africa because then they could just add water to it uh, and it would be similar to the other types of rum. They wanted it as concentrated alcohol as possible. They're exporting it to consumers in Africa, though, as well. But yes, they were, they're sending it to Britain and to Africa, where they were trading uh, for it. And yes, they're trading with Muslim countries, but there's still records of them trading rum in Africa, both to the English colonies. Uh, England, uh, at that time, had a small uh, colony in, North Morocco, in northern Morocco, I believe, uh, there were other places in Africa where the colonies were already coming up and they were sending rum there. Wow, amazing stuff. The majority and... of it was going was going to England, though. Mm. And then from England, uh, some of it was going through to other places. Mm. But rum was not really esteemed as a drink at this time. It was uh, a, a drink of the lower of the lower classes. Brandy was a drink of the higher classes. And in most cases, they would use that rum in punches and things like that. So you weren't really enjoying the flavor of the rum so much as the cheap alcohol. <laughs> in terms of slavery, I imagine, you know, when we start, when it all started up, though, it's, it's the sugar that's the key product that the slaves are kind of uh, taken so that they can harvest the sugar. And then what rum, rum really springs up as a side industry, I guess. But the British then get, get quite uh, enamored of it. Absolutely, because of the fact that Originally, when sugar was coming from the Arab world, when it started out actually being produced in India, taken by ship up through the Red Sea by camel caravan across to the Mediterranean, and then from the Mediterranean going further to the rest of the world, often via Venice. And each time it crossed a border, more trade, more taxes were put upon it. It became more and more expensive. So sugar started out very, very expensive, and then it marches across uh, the Mediterranean. It starts out in uh, the Egyptians, start growing it in the Nile Delta. Then it starts being grown in Sicily. It goes from Sicily to Mallorca, from Mallorca to the Canary Islands, and then from there makes the jump. So anywhere where people can grow sugar, they do because there is just an inexhaustible demand for it.
Uh, Richard Foss is here with you on Nightlife on ABC Radio and me, Suzanne Hill, uh, on this Saturday night. And we are talking about the history of rum. We're hopefully in a few weeks going to talk about the history of vodka, the history of gin. Because there's all sorts of fascinating stories behind all of these, uh, these spirits. When did it start being called rum, Richard? Well, there's a quote from a letter that someone sent. And that letter is the earliest uh, that we know of in which, and I'm going to quote it as directly as I can, where he says, this is writing of Barbados. There has lately come into these islands a drink called rum bullion, a hot, hellish, and horrible beverage. So obviously this person wasn't a fan of it. Uh, but <laughs> hot, it, hellish, that... and horrible. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, the thing about it is, is that it, this is an unaged spirit. This is something where they were taking it basically direct from the still. And I've had alcohol that is direct from the still. And it is a, you know, it is as described. It's very hot in flavor, in taste. It doesn't, you know, it mellows out a great deal with even a little aging, even a year or two. And it accidentally gets aging in the ships, of course, because they were slow ships then. And the ships with the agitating of the liquid in the barrels is speeding their aging a little bit. So rum that you move around in a ship, as was inevitably happening, is actually better than the rum that sits in the same place because it's not being agitated and not having the uh, as much contact with the barrel. Uh, incidentally, you started out at the beginning saying, why did pirates uh, seem to celebrate the stuff so much? Well, it's because it's what they could steal. I mean, if, if they could steal brandy, they'd have happily stolen brandy. If they could have <laughs> stolen beer, they'd have stolen beer. But in the Caribbean and the golden age of piracy, rum was what you could get. And you might consider that since rum is highly flammable, if a pirate is attacking a ship that has a cargo full of barrels of rum, they might not defend themselves. Because consider one cannonball into a barrel full of rum with those fires for those cannons all around it, you've blown up your ship. So a ship full of rum is very likely to surrender to the pirates. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's easy pickings. <laughs> I suppose, yes, what you're saying is, by, yeah, if you were a pirate in the Caribbean, the ships were much more likely to be to be carrying rum. So, uh, so there you go. Now, I mean, the British Navy actually really started giving, well, rum became part of the way of life for anyone who worked in the British Navy. When, when and why did that happen? Well, one thing that happened was that prior to what the British people were used to, man, woman and child growing up drinking beer uh, because of the fact that that was really part of the staff of life in the British Isles at that time. Uh, people didn't drink straight water because they believed it was unhealthful. Why? Because it was. Unless you were getting it from a, fresh from a spring, the water in the Thames and the other rivers was this is coming with open sewers draining into it. So the process of making beer, the process of making alcohol involves boiling it. And you could take some rum, add it to water that otherwise would give you dysentery. And it didn't because you had added the rum. They did not know this was antibacterial, but they knew that if you added alcohol to your water, that uh, it was less poisonous. So they were started out with beer when they could get it, and that's what they really prized, uh, and when not, brandy. But when things uh, got dicey with relationships between the British, the French, and the Spanish, here they are paying money to their enemy to support their navy. Uh, they started as quickly as they could 
shifting to the thing that they could get from British colonies in huge quantity, which was rum. There was there is a belief that goes back to the era of the alchemists that is that the act of distilling something is purifying in and of itself. Anything that you distilled would be better for you, helpful for you, more completely its own essence. So they believed that rum was a health food. And as I mentioned, since it was unpoisoning their water, they were right. It was health food for them. So they were drinking the rum as uh, something that was a tonic for them. It was something that you would find in any medical kit. Uh, when I started studying, uh, I have a whole lecture on the history of the medical of medical attitudes toward alcohol. And I've actually found as late as the year 1915 from an insurance company in America where they mentioned that uh, in case someone is ill, alcohol should be administered. Champagne is best, but whiskey and rum will do fine. And it's like, when was the last time your insurance company told you something that you wanted to follow like that? <laughs> Amazing. So they believed that it was a they believed it was a health tonic. I've found examples of patent medicine labels that uh, there was one called aspirinol that on the label said even better than whiskey for colds and cough. So this was regarded as as a tonic. Yeah. Now, tell us about the the kind of procedure um, around doling out the rum ration on on the ships in the British Navy. This is something that is was a ceremony that goes back into history because one of the things that the sailors were always very concerned about was the possibility that uh, the captain or the purser of the ship, the purser being the person who you know, doles out the various supplies would be shorting their rum ration. So what they had is they would have a sealed cask of rum that had been basically certified by the Navy as being of a certain strength. And they would bring out this Navy rum and they would mix it with water in a tub in front of everybody. So you could see how much rum was being poured in there and how much water was being poured in there. And the sailors were watching to make sure. So they had this uh, oak tub that was often ornately decorated. There are lots of pictures of these that say on the side of the tub, the queen, God bless her. And the reason for that is simply because there are lots of pictures from the Victorian era, because that's when you first start seeing cameras aboard ships. So it was the queen, God bless her. Later on, it would be the king, God bless him. Uh, and uh, then again, when Queen Elizabeth took over, because this continued until 1970, um, there are actually some that have the Queen, God bless her, with reference to the late Queen. So wow. there was a particular there was a particular uh, call on the bosun's pipe called Up Spirits, and there actually are arguments about exactly what this was because. Uh, we know that it had to be one of two tunes, but there's a great deal of argument among musical historians because no one ever got a good recording of an Up Spirits where they recorded the bosun's call. So uh, you think culinary historians get geeky. You should talk to musical <laughs> historians about bugle calls and things like that where no living person has ever heard that bugle call. Well, that just for some reason... We don't, as far as is known, and I checked with naval museums in Britain, nobody has a recording of this entire ceremony. 
The annoying thing is there's there are recordings of the ceremony from the silent film era, and there's one from the talking film era, but unfortunately, the presenter talks over oh. the pipe. Oh, oh. So, Jen, I think that was still during this ceremony, even in, in 1970, when the, the rum ration finally ended. Yes, although they actually did something earlier than that, which was they allowed the sailors to either partake of the rum ration or receive a tiny increase in their pay. So they started trying to wean them off of the rum ration by making the sailors decide whether or not they would have it or not with the promise that, well, after several years in the service, the tiny difference is going to make a big difference in the amount of pay you have when you muster out. Gosh, well, by 1970, you would think the water would be clean enough that you don't have to justify drinking the rum for, for health reasons too. Amazing. Yes, but tradition, it's, <laughs> this is, you know. But the idea of people actually being given alcohol on the job is it kind of, it sits at odds with the idea of, say, strict naval discipline as well, doesn't it? Actually, they regarded it as being a positive thing. Consider that part of the esprit de corps, part of the morale of a group is eating and drinking together. And that particular ceremonial act, the very ceremony of it all, was part of the morale. If you were talking to any other British sailor from anywhere in the world, one of the things that you had in common was that you had your rum ration and you might grouse about, oh yeah, the ration that they gave us uh, from the stuff distilled in the Caribbean was different from the stuff that we got when we were on the African station and that was different from the Australian station. So, you know, it was something that bound you together. Ritual is important in the military. These are people that you're asking to fight and die for you. So anything you can do to weld people together with a ritual, a smart officer is going to do. Do you know if there was much outcry in 1970 when they said, okay, we're, we're pulling the rum ration? Oh, there absolutely were. So, yes, there was... When the rum rations were discontinued, there was a furor, notably among the old officers in the Navy, just because Tradition. old officers, you're changing <laughs> something I grew up with. <laughs> so, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, and yeah, it was the loss of a unique tradition. Now, the British Navy is famous for this, but there are other navies uh, around the world that copied the British and did the exact same thing. The British were trying to figure out why the morale, excuse me, the Russians were trying to figure out why the morale in the British Navy was so high, and they started giving rum rations in the Russian Navy. I found pictures of that. So there were other navies. I believe the Japanese Navy at one point tried this too, where they came up with a ritual distribution of alcohol, not rum, because though they do grow rum in uh, Okinawa, it's the only part of Japan that is hot enough because that's an island a thousand miles south of Tokyo. But they were doing, they tried that too with some kind of ritual because rituals bind people together. Uh, Richard Foss is here. He's the author of Rum, A Global History. We are talking about the history of rum. So now, Richard, I want to turn to New England uh, in the US in the 1600s because there was nearly a, a revolution sort of based around what happened with rum here. I mean, we, I suppose we'll mention our own rum rebellion here, but what, what happened in New England? The situation in New England and in Australia was approximately the same in that the British wanted all of their colonies trading only with Britain. 
And insofar as they could, they wanted them to trade in money because they controlled the supply of money. They did not want their colonies becoming too rich because a colony that became too rich would start having thoughts about independencies. So at various times, starting in the American colonies, they put in a tax on molasses. Now note that this was not a tax on British molasses. What they were doing was putting an extremely high tax on the molasses that was being smuggled in from the Spanish and French colonies. As I mentioned, the Spanish and the French governments prohibited the making of rum as best they could. So that meant that the Spanish and French had this molasses that they would just give away for a song. So the British were having trouble selling British molasses because it was so much cheaper to have this smuggled molasses. And at first, it was not entirely illegal to smuggle it. Well, when they started doing this, it greatly raised the price of rum because the American colonists had to buy from the British colonies. There was less trade going on. Uh, you ended up inevitably with uh, people who were forging documents. And, you know, it's not like you can look at a barrel of molasses and know where the thing came from. And so they would come in with forged papers saying that they had bought it in Barbados or somewhere similar. And it's like, how are you going to prove they're not in an era before fast communication? So the Americans tried all sorts of dodges, but they were outraged by this. So this actually started because of the fact that the British for a while refused to rescind this. And the colonies were very, very short of coinage, which was basically all you had at that time. And the British were keeping them short of coinage. They were forcing them to sell rum in order to get coinage because they said that they had previously allowed people to pay their taxes in barter and they stopped doing that. And these were some of the things that began the unrest that culminated in the American Revolution because of the fact that the British handled this situation very, very poorly. The people at home in Britain who were running the various ministries did not understand the attitudes and situations of the colonies. Uh, it's significant, you know, the, America was part of, was a British colony for a long time no one important from Britain ever came out there. They appointed royal governors, but the quality of the royal governors was notoriously low. A lot of them were people who were fail, had failed at other things. So the, the people who were running the ministries, you never had a major minister. You never had a member of the royal family. You never had anyone very important come and see what the situation was what like, what the attitudes of the colonists were. So they were liable to they were liable to overestimate their loyalty and underestimate the degree to which they wanted. They wanted to be Englishmen. They didn't really want to be Americans. They wanted to be Englishmen and felt that in this situation, they needed to have the rights of an Englishman for representation. You know, it, it the whole demand for representation and no taxation without representation, the first of those great taxes without representation was on molasses. Mm -hmm. One of the things about rum, as opposed to coin, is it's very easy to make change. You pour some out of the jug and you give someone the jug and you've got the rest of it. With coinage, you actually literally had people cutting coins into pieces. 
You've heard about pieces of eight in piracy. That's because they would take an eight real uh, coin and cut it into pieces because they didn't have small coinage. So, Richard, what did this mean for the American taste for rum? This is obviously the movement of sort of no taxation without representation. But in terms of rum, if the molasses was being taxed, did the Americans go, we'll smuggle in more, we'll pay the prices, or did they think, oh, let's make our alcohol from something else? What happened was that rum, which started out just being, you know, we have these materials for it, it's very cheap, it's going to be used for almost everything. You actually have this barter system where uh, all of a lot of the early uh, deeds for land state the price of the lamb in uh, of the land in terms of barrels of rum, uh, and gradually, particularly since you have large portions of people from Scotland and Ireland and the north of England who settled in the Appalachians, uh, well, those people know how to make whiskey, and they're in grain growing territory. So they start doing it, and it becomes regarded as more patriotic to drink whiskey than it is to drink rum. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.